This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best box casting either side of the breach. on the Breachside Broadcast. We are changing it up on the show for the immediate future, so let me get you up to speed on the changes you can expect to hear. Or see, if you're one of those types that sees sounds and hears shapes, we don't discriminate here on the show. The stories for the next two shows and a half are going to be a special insider look at some of the unique personalities that have affected the landscape of Malifaux. I did pitch a feature-length special that followed a young boy to the lofty heights of Etherbox presenting legends, but apparently it never would catch on. Two of those yarns in just a tick. We are also taking the show mobile and going on a grand tour of Malifaux, as well as some of the nearby towns. Fed up of just experiencing the stories in your own front room? Well, as part of the Tales of Malifaux Roadshow, we'll be piloting watcher constructs at random intervals to random places and blast the show to you at full volume. For more information, just... Wait. This is our first look at a Malifaux citizen now, Mr. C. Hoffman. Bugil. Hoffman fidgeted in the hard wood chair, adjusting the straps of his brass support braces, trying to keep the metal hinges from rubbing against the ribs on his back. The single kerosene lamp hanging above him cast little light and the rest of the small room was shrouded in darkness. There was little need for light in the ascetic room, with only a small table before him and the empty chair adjacent. He was made to wait excessively long before Lucius Matteson, the Governor-General's secretary, returned to the room and strode quietly past him to sit opposite. Each man was physically slight, and Lucius would be considered frail in the company of any save C. Hoffman, struggling to keep his back straight in the chair for any length of time. I've been instructed to change tactics with you, Mr. Hoffman, Lucius said, with a slow and overly articulated inflection that Hoffman found disconcerting. From the King's Empire, he was always self-conscious of how people would look at him as a curiosity when he spoke. He had a habit of identifying the origins of speech of those around him. Lucius spoke with a unique accent he hadn't heard before. Hoffman's eyes were downcast and sweat along his stiff collar made him more uncomfortable. We began with the notion of interrogating you for your supposed involvement in arcanist activities. Many witnesses identified you with wanted arcanists at the train derailment. You and another. As you can imagine, you are a fairly identifiable man. His eyes motioned to the straps around his torso, tying him to the brass supports that ran the length of his body. We would, of course... Like to know where you've been this last week since the incident. But my employer, the Governor General, has come to believe you may not be directly tied to their seditious activities. However, we both believe you may offer insight into probable ties between recent acts of violence and rebellion and the arcanist interests in the mines north of the city. Hoffman's head remained bowed but his eyes lifted to stare at the small man seated opposite him, beneath his narrow brow. Would you be able to help us root out the Arcanist terrorists, Mr. Hoffman? The Arcanists. 
He wished he had never heard the word, wished he had never agreed to cross the breach. Sitting on that train beside his brother Ryle as it approached the swirling eddies of ether escaping from the breach, he had an overwhelming sense of dread. Relax, Ryle had said. It's just a moment through the breach, and we'll be on the other side, just above Malifaux. Yes. Very exciting. Hoffman rolled his eyes at his older brother. And I'm not nervous about passing through the breach. I just cannot understand why you've decided to haul me around on your adventure. I'll be nothing but in your way, he said, motioning to the braces on his legs. Old chap, we're going there for you too. An excuse, because you know I'd be lost without you. You have an opportunity. I do not want to be in your way any more. You are not in the way. Ever. I'm meeting Professor Ramos, it's true. An opportunity to apprentice beside one of the greatest inventors and innovators of our time. But consider his work with clockwork constructs. Think what it'll mean to be able to walk again. I can walk now. Ryle gave him a sidelong glance. Limited. The polio's got you, and you know you cannot hide it from me. Working with Ramos. We'll have you running laps around the King's Court and playing cricket in the yard. Ryle would focus upon creating a better mobile assistant for him, he knew. Ryle had become too obsessed with helping him defy the symptoms of the polio. Big, strong, robust. Ryle had put aside all athletics in favor of studying every minute upon biology, physiology, and engineering, looking for both cure and aid for his younger brother. Hoffman needed him, it was true. But he had hampered every opportunity for Ryle to progress, even seeing him leave Oxford in favor of this trip to Malifaux to work with Ramos. In other circumstances, it might have been a wonderful opportunity for Ryle, but he couldn't help but feel that Ryle made his choices based on what it might offer him. Physically superior, mentally without peer, often often thought how unfair it was they were brothers. Not because he envied Ryle, though he did in every way, because his frailty dictated his older brother's fate so drastically. He could only offer basic engineering assistance to Ryle, trying to keep up with the elder brother's flashing mind that could discern so many nuances of every science. He limited all of Ryle's opportunities due to his own glaring limitations of the flesh and mind. Don't worry, little brother, Ryle said with a smile. We'll meet Ramos in just minutes, and he'll help us. They had entered the breach. Like all of the passengers, he was all smiles as he leaned over to see the quickly moving waves of magical ether escaping the great portal between worlds. The ride through the breach took only a moment, and the experience was said to be filled with excitement and energy that coursed through a person. Although different for everyone, the common claim was that it would change your life. Ryle's smile disappeared as the blue light filled their car, electricity arcing between bodies and seats. He screamed loudly, clutching his head and riding out of his seat. Accounts from passengers coming through the gateway of the breach rarely agreed upon the circumstances of the experience. The majority of travellers said the flash of blue light lasted only a brief moment with a tingling sensation in their extremities, like the quick snap of static electricity. Some reported a surreal slowing of time, like they could look around the train car at the excited faces frozen in place, the sound of the iron wheels on the rails coming in muted, distant echoes. However, Hoffman had never heard of an account remotely similar to his experience. At first, time seemed to stretch and distort as his arms struggled to pull his feeble body over the seat. 
reaching for his brother in the aisle. His outstretched arm froze in place. But his mind moved frantically fast, spanning full internal conversation and thought. Ryle, too, was further disjoint in time, screaming and shaking, the spasms racking him to and fro with sharply exaggerated movements, too fast for normal. Blue electricity crackled all around in what Hoffman might consider normal time and movement, and it centered upon Ryle, arcing to the other passengers, smiling with the thrill of passing through the breach, frozen on their unmoving faces. Then the effects of the breach struck him in full. Howling, unintelligible voices consumed his mind, devouring the thoughts that were his own, suppressing his own will. He, too, fell back against the seat, his upper body flailing forward and back. He could not think, but the droning of the wheels came faintly to him as if miles away, and he latched onto the sound with his mind, desperately trying to ignore the countless voices struggling for dominance of his mind. Slowly he was able to follow a thought, but it was removed, strangely, from his consciousness, as if he tried to control a dream and think logically in that discordant realm of sleep. The wheels continued to clack on the rails. Ryle flailed back and forth unnaturally faster than perceivable. The train would not go through the breach, it seemed. His mind, ready to collapse, to succumb to the weight driving upon it, roared out the single thought, faster, as if obeying him. The cars lurched and they were through into the open air of Malifaux. Time resumed, and pleasant gasps of excitement and various oohs and ahs were quickly cast aside as the screaming of Ryle on the car's floor and the jerking of the brothers' bodies compelled them to panic, and they stared in wide-eyed terror at the two brothers writhing in pain. To the other passengers, only a second had passed, and they were all filled with expectant jubilation. The train bucked and the brakes ground hard, screeching madly while sparks danced at the windows. More and more of the passengers joined Ryle's screaming as the car in front of them hopped, leaving the tracks. Theirs bounced and heaved, crashing into it, sending some passengers out of their seats. They were jolted again as the car behind them struck their own. Hoffman still couldn't think, though the vast and conflicting noise within his mind slowly abated. He struggled to remain conscious, slipping in and out of that dream state that sought to overwhelm him. We're derailing, he said aloud. A thick grey fog enveloped his mind, and the sound around him again pulled away, lost in the darkness. No. The great engine at the front grabbed hold of the tracks. As if obeying his demand, all the cars bucked and would have turned end over end, killing them all. We must stop, he thought, and he slipped further into the fog. Every remaining passenger and every car was thrown from his or her seat as each car's wheels miraculously grabbed hold of the rails. Loose luggage was thrown violently forward, too, and screaming and crying filled the air. He couldn't think, couldn't focus on anything save his brother in the aisle, possibly dead or dying because of a desperate adventure through the damnable breach to give him some hope against the paralysis and the disease that disabled him. Time might have been moving normally, but it seemed to Hoffman that a terribly long time passed in that stunned haze. Voices called above the din of the wounded and scared. Ryle Hoffman, he heard a stranger shout. Where is Ryle Hoffman? It was a dim and faraway voice. Hoffman could not speak, could not call out for them to help. Ryle Hoffman, he heard the call again, though he knew it was moving away and he could do nothing to stop them. He raised his hand feebly with what was left of his will, then dropped as he teetered on the edge of consciousness. 
That's not Ryle, another man said above him. It's the brother. Hoffman motioned his brother on the floor, staring vacantly at the ceiling of the car, mouth agape. Take him, one said. He's not dead, and the boss may be able to fix him up. What about the cripple? He'll slow us down. Leave him. The passengers slowly gathered their wits, climbing back to their seats as they assessed minor injuries. Seeing the two men climb aboard their car, they naturally assumed the men were there to help the wounded, but they ignored everyone save the Hoffmans. One woman, having travelled to and from Malifaux, recognised one from wanted posters hung throughout the city. Arcanist, she yelled. One of the men growled. I knew it was a mistake to bring you, Enrique. The other passengers joined the call, pointing at the two. Arcanists, they cried. Another woman, sobbing, accused, You did this, as they passed her. Enrique, overwhelmed by fear and anxiety, pulled his revolver and fired upon her without thinking. His companion grabbed him about the collar and shook him. What have you done? he demanded. The passengers cowered, incapable of stifling their screams as panic mounted. They think we did this, Enrique yelled. Now the guards will come straight for this car, the other said. Grab that one too, you fool, he said, pointing to Hoffman, who had succumbed to unconsciousness. Guild guards are coming now because of this damned accident. Of all days for the thing to derail. Hoffman slipped in and out of consciousness as the men fled, once hearing gunshots and cursing next to him before slipping out again. One said, enough of this. Let's dump them with Ramos and be done with it. As his mind cleared, and he reluctantly fought back into a normal state of thought, he looked about a room with great and wondrous science apparatus and metal bits on great machines. Articulated legs, bigger than a man, hung along walls, and dark oiled gears were scattered throughout the room. On a work table in the centre of the room, lit from above, remarkably by electrical lights, glowing fiercely, was his brother Ryle. A slight man, older, hovered over Ryle, working with an acetylene torch and dark goggles protecting his eyes from the bright flashes and sparks. Hoffman struggled to sit upright on the small cot against the wall, but he swooned from the effort. What? What are you doing? he murmured. Victor Ramos looked up from his work, staring at Hoffman through the welding goggles. Saving his life, he said, as the younger Hoffman passed out again. When he awoke again, he had no concept of time, of how long he might have been unconscious. His head, still splitting with pain, had a lingering thought of voices at the back of his mind, indistinct and quiet. Ramos? he said to the man now sitting beside him. The smell of oil and the acrid smell of solder and burnt metal permeated the room. Yes. Welcome back. It's good you are awake. We have much to discuss. Ramos clearly was a man that wasted little time. Ryle? Ramos hesitated, though he'd expected the need to discuss what had befallen his older brother. Alive. But the breach nearly consumed him. It happens infrequently. Only when a person has great potential in the arcane. Can I see him? Speak to him? Not yet. He's recovering. He was nearly lost. He'll... He'll need time to recover. As will you. Unfortunately, we do not have much time to spare. You'll soon be apprehended. The Guild saw you and your brother and some arcanist agents. Yes, Hoffman said angrily. They did this. Excuse me? Ramos asked. 
genuinely surprised. It was an attack. Why would they do this? Ramos was puzzled, and nearly chastised the man, before his quick-thinking mind put the pieces together, that the younger brother of Ryle Hoffman did not know why they were coming to Malifaux, who they were to meet there. If not for the conflict at Kythera keeping him from the arrival at the train station, he would have been there to meet the new protégé, Ryle, who many of his old colleagues Earthside spoke so highly of. Ramos proceeded cautiously. The Arcanists may not have had anything to do with the train derailment, he said thoughtfully. If Hoffman truly believed there was no connection between his brother, Ramos, and the Arcanist movement, there would be nothing to learn in interrogating him. Hoffman leaned back upon his pillow, closing his eyes to diminish the pain in his head. They were there, looking for Ryle. I thought they might be there to help, but I think they wanted to kill us. Ramos said nothing but thought quietly to himself about what Hoffman said. I'm not sure of that. Regardless, the Arcanists demand the freedom to practice the magic they believe is their birthright. Malifaux and the Breach sometimes awakens a power in an individual he may not have known was even there. Take you, for example. Me? What about me? Wild Earthside, did you ever know the power you possessed? What power? Ramos smiled from his chair evaluating the accidental gift he might have discovered in the form of this frail man, crippled since childhood. Do you see these constructs about us? Hoffman opened his eyes, looking at the various machines, each vaguely reminiscent of an animal he might recognize from home. Spidery machines, no bigger than a small dog, scampered about near his bed, and one much larger feline-like construct faced him from near the center of the room its eyes glowing red within the sockets of its plated head. Yes, but my brother said you were a master engineer, inventor without peer. Thank you. He revered your ability to revolutionize mining, and your work with electricity generation, storage, and usage is studied at University Earthside. These are your work, no doubt. They are my work. What does that have to do with me, then? They have no operational cortex. They're shells on the scrap heap. But they move. They function. When you were brought here, they came alive, without a Mechanica Cortex. They've been tending you, bringing you water when you were thirsty, though you never spoke aloud. They put a wet cloth on your forehead when you ran fever. They retrieved me when you stirred just moments ago. I... I have no such ability, sir. You do now, Mr. Hoffman. We have not much time to speak. I must be very brief, and what I will tell you may shock you. I fear it will disturb you greatly, and I apologize. I intend to help you understand this new gift, this new ability. I suspect we will need it to help your brother Ryle. The breach nearly destroyed him, and he is very wounded in body and mind. Remo spoke with increasing urgency, the words coming faster. In order to save him, I had to integrate very innovative new technology with his body and brain. He was comatose and his organs failing. The legality of this work is questionable at best. I had no choice. What? I don't... Hoffman's breathing came as quickly as Ramos' words, and he was on the edge of hyperventilation. Listen, Ramos barked. He's still lost, his body rejecting much of the Mechanica. You can save him! Me? How? The guild officials will come and take you for questioning. Too many witnesses of the derailment. 
Too many things said that should not have been spoken. Remo said the last through gnashing teeth. If they link you or your brother to arcanists, they will lock you away. Your brother will be lost forever. Why did they do this? he asked, his head pounding through the resurgent fever burning through him. No time for that, Remo said. We must get you to a safe house. You cannot be seen here. Not with me. Not yet. Within minutes, he was dressed and carried from the laboratory of Victor Ramos by constructs the professor said had no functioning cortex. He was found the next day, burning with fever, hidden in a small room along the edge of the slum district of Malifaux. A vision of his brother on Ramos' lab table haunted him. He was tormented by the thought of a man, gifted with brawn, an acclaimed academic scholar, now inches from death because of a personal mission to save him, his younger brother. Now, to save his life, he had construct technology grafted to his flesh, and his mind was broken. Hoffman had the sinking feeling that Ryle was attempting to meet some covert arcanist, all, no doubt, to help him. Fortunately, he thought, they were scared, pursued. They brought us to Ramos instead. Would you be able to help us root out the arcanist terrorists, Mr. Hoffman? Hoffman didn't respond, but his eyes turned away from Lucius again. So, Mr. Hoffman, we understand that you've discovered a latent power, having been awakened through the breach. It's a common indication of a potential master of the art. Hoffman said nothing, his head bowed, sweating with fever. You've demonstrated an affinity with constructs? Hoffman said nothing, remaining motionless, eyes downcast. Lucius sighed. Mr. Hoffman... You'll either be able to help us, or we'll be forced to pursue the investigation into possible connections you might have with the Arcanists. At the word, his eyes lifted and he stared at Lucius angrily. The ties I have to the Arcanists will drive me until my death, he said. Then you will help us. You will help me, he said. I will find the Arcanists. They will pay for what they've done to me. He was careful not to mention his brother, lest they trace him to the Arcanists, before he could uncover the connections his brother had made. I need access to a lab. Material. Of course, Mr. Hoffman. All you need. Construct technology. After all, that's the office you will be heading up. How's that again? Construct human grafting. It should lead us to the parties we seek. The technology is unique to Malifaux and is highly illegal. Many enemies to the guild, excuse me, to all peaceful settlers here. He continued to speak, but Hoffman could no longer follow the words. Ramos fit the description of those the guild hoped to implicate for Arcanist ties, as Ramos feared. His brother, Ryle, quickly integrated with technological construct equipment, fit the description of those the guild would soon be hunting, too. The Arcanists did this. With the full might of the guild backing him, he would doggedly pursue those that took his brother.
This story comes from a guardsman group that were posted on a train in the northern mountains. They were attacked by nothing. They looked like, um, well, yeah, you know, nothing, really. The journey started off fine. The train itself, Old Faithful, was just one day away from retirement. But just outside the mining settlement called Diligence, the forces of nothingness attacked. Old Faithful was overturned, and a few people were injured by the nothing forces. A cleanup effort has begun, since nothing can leave one hell of a mess. When asked to describe what nothing looked like, one of the passengers had this to say. Well, it had like these... Ah, that's not right. Uh, let me think. Or... It was as if you could see right through them, because they weren't there. Or if you're looking into an empty room with no walls, or ceiling, or any room at all. Or a blank canvas without the canvas. You know what I mean? I think that I speak for everyone listening at this moment, citizen, by saying we haven't got the foggiest clue what you're talking about. Sounds like they all made it up, if you ask me. Something that is definitely not made up are the gruesome killings of guild personnel. Officials have yet to find a culprit, but some think that the eastern symbols left at the events could lead to a link with crime families within the Little Kingdom. Dwell upon that as we listen to our next tale. Resurrectionists as the morning sun drew high, Karai and Koku's strength withered until she collapsed in the gutter, deep within the slum district, but she had no idea where. She was too weak to continue crying, but the thin trickle of water from her weeping stained her face with smeared makeup bleeding down her dark cheek. She lost not just the will and strength to keep moving, but the very will to live. How could she awaken to the most beautiful day of her life? filled with more joy and comfort than she'd ever hoped she might have found when she left her family in the Three Kingdoms, only to have it dashed away in moments. Rainwater mixed with the waste of the inhabitants of the slums washed into her eye from the drainage trough beside the cobblestone road and into her gaping mouth. She no longer cared. She was vulnerable, prostrate in this dark section of the city. Now, with the memory of those moments running through her head over and over again, she wished she'd never run at all, but simply let the man have his way. She drew her hand to her face and stared at the green serpent ring, the circumference too big for her dainty fingers. It was all that mattered to her now, the only possession of any value, more even than her life. If she died, she would take it to her grave, she vowed. If anyone would bother to have her buried, it was more likely that someone would take it there in that nearly lawless district, and let her live. Mustering what little strength she retained, she rolled onto her back and removed the thin chain from around her neck. Her vision blurred and her arms were heavy as she shook aside the worthless charm dangling from it and slipped her ring upon the links. Clasping it again, she tugged the serpentine ring within her pale kimono, stained with dirt from the sweat and filth of the gutter, as well as her own sweat and tears. Her mind faltered and slipped deeper into unconsciousness, and as she passed out, her last thought was that she hoped she might never awaken again. The ring at her neck beat as if a heart throbbed within the metal in emerald form. Although still alive, her spirit rose from her body. Its gossamer form billowed in the wind like thin vapour lingering above an extinguished candle, 
It regarded the girl lying below it on the street, eyes of strangers dismissing her from open windows. No one came to help her. Some might cause harm to the body, but the detached soul knew what no longer mattered. Only one thing mattered to her now, and that was vengeance for what had been done to her. The Akirio spirit of Karai and Koku flew high above Malifo and began its search for those that committed such atrocities. It reached into the ether, separating the tangible worlds known to man, the source of her power, and the home of immeasurable spirits. It was a simple gesture of her great will to pull forth several of the weakest spirits, old and with little thought and understanding remaining to them of their lives in the world of the living. The Akirio gave five of them form, locked them to the physical world, yet their bodies longed to dissipate back into the comfort of the spirit ether where they belonged, their substance rolling away like fog in the noonday sun. But she held them in place and commanded them to seek out the men that were responsible for what they had done to her, to Karai. The Saishin spirits meandered reluctantly through the narrow alleys of the city, following their charge, invisibly seeking out an end to their mission so they might be released and once more be forgotten. The first they discovered were two ex-guardsmen, returning from the morning's encounter at the Key and Gong. Albert MacDonald cradled his bloody arm while the other laughed at his misfortune, jangling the coins in the small pouch strapped to his belt. He almost cut off my hand, MacDonald complained, as they rounded Caskill Boulevard. Ah, you'll heal. Stop your belly again and appreciate the work you got. Botched the job and still got some coin for the trouble. Not bad. Need more. Need true guild scrip. Not a few clinkers a change. Getting too hard to make ends meet, and you know it. Muscle for hire is getting to be a common enough racket that every blamed fool with a gun. He never finished his statement. Never said another word. Before the two men stood a beautiful woman. Judging by her thin body and the rigid posture of a lady expected to present herself to a high station, their arms stretched out, and the wide-open sleeves of the white kimono fell beyond her waist. She wore a thick alabaster mask, devoid of any human features save the narrow almond-shaped eye-holes of the Orient. She appeared transparent. And as she took form before the two men, the gaseous lower part of her body developed into multiple layers of kimono, with a loose outer robe blowing in a wind that was not there. The Anru solidified before them, and they merely looked upon it, mouths agape and eyes growing wide. A howl erupted from its throat, and its arms lashed forward. Despite a breadth of four yards separating them, MacDonald was thrown backward by the sheer malevolence made tangible. The breath struck from his body and his hat rolled away, caught up in the eddy of the spiritual gust. She pounced and the second mercenary jumped away, trying to escape, screaming in terror. The Anru descended upon him, raking its razor-like nails across his back, driving him to the ground. It fell upon him, mauling his flesh, screaming in hatred as it tore into him. As his body stilled, the pool of blood growing beneath it, its masked face lifted to regard MacDonald, scampering away. Its claws gleamed in the light falling between buildings, and its chest heaved in a mockery of growling and breath from the exertion, though it did not breathe. MacDonald screamed and covered his face with his arms as it covered the distance between them in the span of a heartbeat. The Akirio was there then, and stopped the Anru from fulfilling its purpose. It held the wrist of the Anru, flailing and screaming madly to be allowed to destroy the man, its rage immense and unbridled. But the Akirio was strong, 
and held its hand effortlessly from slicing into the guilty. The Akirio's other hand found the man's throat and held him to the ground as he beat upon it ineffectually. It wrapped its fingers around the hand of the Anru, extending its index finger and holding it like a quill pen. Screaming through the ordeal, the Akirio used the extended fingers to carve an elaborate kanji symbol across his forehead. He continued screaming wildly as it used the Anru finger as a scalpel, cutting his vest and shirt aside, and then the flesh of his torso. It cut layer upon layer aside until it exposed his heart. It wouldn't let him die. Finally, the Akirio released the Anru whose mask was pulled aside to reveal a face twisted in the anguish of a damnation of denied revenge for something MacDonald had nothing to do with. It didn't care. It ripped his beating heart from the cavity of his chest, severing the arteries and vessels and freeing it from his body. Hours later, Nicodem the Undertaker looked upon the two bodies. Hiding his interest as a death marshal and two witch hunters poked and prodded the remains. He would not reveal the curiosity that flashed thrillingly through his mind as they recounted the several eyewitness accounts they had procured. Likely, no one would have come to aid the Dark Men during an attack in that section of the city, or any other section. Yet each account of this dual murder proved more sinister, as each witness agreed that the men were attacked by invisible apparitions. If not for the gore and visceral remains, no one would have thought the victims were anything other than insane flailing against the air from their perspective. The guild officers debated about the possibility of an arcane assassin. Nicodem scoffed silently at their simple-minded efforts at understanding what was so clear to him. They waited for a scholar to arrive to decipher the marks on both men's heads, now that the coagulated blood had been cleaned away and the flesh put into place. The Sai Shin found a third man that had informed the assailants of Karai's whereabouts and reported his location to the Akirio. It descended upon the building where he worked, oblivious to the crimes to which he was a part. In fact, he believed himself to be a bastion of lawfulness in a world filled with anarchy and criminality, dutifully carrying out his work without complaint or question. He had no idea who Karai Ankoku was until the request came before him to locate her whereabouts, and he quickly had Deputy Reynolds, another guardsman, assigned to track her down reporting to his superior the findings of that tracker. Here he worked, just a clerk going about his business. The Akirio passed through the guild offices unseen and silent. It waited until he was alone in a back room, filing paper and returning arcane tomes to their proper place when the Akirio held shut the door. The room was within the deepest interior of the building and had no windows to let in the light of day. The candles illuminating his work flickered in a wind, though no breeze could infiltrate the closed room. He looked up from his paperwork, confused, but without concern as he worked within the heart of the greatest guild building in Malifaux, likely the safest place in the entire world. The air grew stifling, and sweat beaded on his forehead and upper lip, and he felt it so thick that he could hardly breathe. He knew something was wrong. He held the candle before him with a hand shielding it as he walked so as not to extinguish the flame. As he neared the door, anxious to leave the oppressive room, a dark figure loomed before him as the candlelight fell upon it. She was a tall woman, old and bent with long features and eyes hidden behind a thick fold of cloth. She smiled, exposing a row of pointed teeth, each dark and stained. She raised a large lantern wrapped in rice paper, 
and as she did, it began to glow, illuminating them both. You've been a bad man, the Datsuba said. I've come to weigh your sins against your character. He staggered backward and fell, crawling away from the sinister woman that had somehow infiltrated the innermost chambers of the guild offices. She raised the slender carving knife before her smiling face. He whimpered, I have no sins. I'm a good man. She cackled a low, dry laugh. Well, that's what they all say. You won't have much to fear then, I suppose. She took her time slicing away his clothes to expose him, naked and struggling. But she didn't mind the effort to hold him down. The blows against her to ward off the attack were easily ignored, and she hummed quietly as she worked. She cut away a thin layer of flesh, and his screams took on a higher pitch. Surgically, she peeled away more and more layers until his screaming tore the lining in his throat. Later, there would be no way to know it, but he died choking on his own blood. Guardsmen and officers beat upon the door to aid him, but it withstood all of their efforts. As a final blow struck the wood, it burst into the room, torn easily from its iron hinges as if nothing ever resisted its opening. The sounds of the clock screaming had ceased minutes earlier and none dared enter the darkness of the room. When they were each armed with a gaslight and ready weapon, they entered to find the man, naked and flayed, his blood spilled beneath him. His chest was open, and it took no time to discern his heart had been removed. The mark upon his head was an elaborate carving of a kanji symbol. There was no egress from the room save the one thick door they'd broken down. No signs of any other person could be found. Nicodem was summoned to deal with the remains, and he found it amusing that each death, just as peculiar and mysterious and clearly the work of something supernatural, elicited only one step of elevation for the guild investigators. No Lady Justice. No Madam Crid. They brought in higher-ranking officers to scratch their heads and debate the significance of the kanji symbol they didn't recognize. Having chosen the Nipponese warrior as his preferred animated soldier, he knew this symbol upon the man's head. It meant judgment. The fourth man the Akirio wanted was Reynolds, the man that had followed her that night to the Kian Gong and reported her whereabouts to the one that wanted her dead. It was now late in the day, and he was finishing his duties, thinking nothing at all of the work he had done regarding the tracking of a mere girl, a prostitute, and how it might be linked to the growing rumors surrounding these mysterious deaths. He had a curiosity about such things, and anxiety too, but living in Malifaux had a desensitizing effect about those kinds of issues. As he walked to the guild stables at the back of the guild offices, two Shikomi spirits, great bat-like beasts with long teeth, descended upon him from the darkening sky. One moment he was whistling absently, and the next he was shrieking wildly as the two carried him aloft, fighting for pieces of his flesh tearing his body away from one another to covet his flesh as their own. They struggled over him, and the Akirio remained close, holding his soul within him, refusing to let him die. When he could take no more, the Akirio dismissed the two beasts, and his body unnaturally held alive fell back to the ground, his bones shattered and tore through what flesh remained. The Akirio hovered above him. He could not feel his limbs, of course, as they were shattered and most of the flesh torn away and devoured. He didn't even breathe, 
though he knew something was wrong when he tried to scream and not even a gasp escaped him. His eyes darted back and forth in fear and anguish. Her claws tore open his chest and removed his heart while he watched it lifted before his eyes. She let him die as his mind, like the remains of his body, was truly broken. They found him soon thereafter, and would have thought him attacked and killed by something much more carnal than the typical surgical cutting they had found on the other bodies that day. Little remained of him save a picked-over skeleton and greasy smear beneath it that even the bugs didn't seem interested in. The precisely carved kanji symbol on his forehead, however, marked him as the fourth of the day's victims. The sun rested on the edge of the horizon as Karai stirred, awakening in the gutter where she'd fallen unconscious. Remarkably, she was unmolested, even having spent the entire day in the street, her kimono barely fastened about her otherwise naked body. The thought of the Akirio was nothing but a quickly fading dream. She believed that's all it was, just a wish for revenge that she was impotent to enact. It saw her, though, and knew she had no desire to go on living. Vengeance for one so small and frail seemed beyond her capability. Her Akirio spirit, however, had plans for two more men responsible for the depths of her suffering. If Karai lived through the day, her spirit vowed she would visit the captain herself and drag him to hell. The final victim would be most difficult to reach, but he was powerful and ever surrounded by other potent practitioners of the arcane arts. Still, she would mete out vengeance for the crimes committed against the young girl that rose from the cobblestone pavement and dragged herself reluctantly to the servant's shack behind the Governor-General's mansion. citizens of this strange new world. Who are they? You'll have to wait and see. And maybe they'll even cover the backstory of the announcer. Who can say? Perhaps it is best to wrap this thing up now before I start talking about myself in the third person any longer. I've seen the same thing happen to many people in broadcasting. One day, totally fine. The next, they start using the English language in a peculiar way. There's a one-way trip to the sanatorium for you. Wishing you the very safest use of your vocabulary. Stay safe out there because bad things happen.